Welcome to Tech Empire. I'm your host, Michael Quet. Today we welcome Jennifer Valentino DeVries. Jennifer is a technology reporter at the New York Times. She has also worked for the Wall Street Journal, ProPublica, and the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University. She is the lead author of a recently published story called Your Apps Know Where You Were Last Night and They're Not Going to Keep It Secret, which is available at the New York Times website. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. All right. So today we're going to dig deeper into how an industry of app publishers and advertisers are tracking each of us through our smartphones. So before we get into the story, tell me, how did the investigation into this uh, story begin? So this story um, started back in um, late spring of last year. Um, and I had written a, another story um, about companies that were getting data, um, getting access to data from the major cell carriers and passing that along. And eventually, you know, it went through a couple of middlemen and then ended up with a company called Securus that usually um, is known for providing prison phone systems, but they also allowed law enforcement, um, sheriff's departments, and so forth to access this uh, location tracking system and actually track phones in real time using the cell network. And um, they were able to do this uh, without warrants in some in some cases. So I, I wrote a story about that and then started getting some tips that this um, industry was far more prevalent than um, and was doing more things than we had realized. Um, I'd actually, you know, I've been covering technology for a while and anybody who's been in this space knows that location-based ads have been around for years. Um, location tracking is pretty common. But the uses that we started hearing about um, this year went beyond that. Okay, so if we're looking at Securus, so tell me just a, just a tiny bit about that. From the article, they were pulling information from telecommunications providers. Is that right? Right. So the telecommunications providers um, were allowing access to what are known as location aggregators. And those companies, Location Smart um, was a, a major one. Um, they get access to this data, and it's it's used um, generally. It's supposed to be with opt in by the customer. So there's a procedure where you know you might get a pop up on your phone, and you have to say that, you know, it's okay for them to do this, um, like to give you a coupon when you're near some kind of store, something like that, right? So you're opting in to this system. But of course, that's done through, um, you know, the equivalent of sort of like an API. And the checks in that, as it turns out, were just that, you know, the entity had to confirm that this was with user consent. Um, and there were kind of some ways around that. Okay, so we'll, we'll get to talking about the consent process here. 
Um, but with the so that that led you along a path where you started looking into uh, this kind of industry for the commercial world, for advertising and for other uses, where there's just a, a whole wide range of companies that are basically in your phone that are keeping tabs on where you are physically all of the time. So. Let's talk a little bit about how this works. Uh, I know that the article explains some of it, but there's more technical details to how exactly these companies go about pulling this off. So at the beginning of the article, you know how an app is being used to track a a school teacher's smartphone. And uh, in this case, I believe it, it was recording the whereabouts of the user every two seconds. And it was following her where she was going to uh, stay with an ex-boyfriend, to Weight Watchers. What is the mechanism for tracking here? Right. So there are several um, several different mechanisms. So, you know, we, when we started, we were talking about Location Smart and the cell carriers and Securus, and those are using cell tower triangulation and the cellular network, right? And... Um, because that is something that every phone has to hook into. Initially, I thought that that was how this tracking would be done. But it turns out that for many commercial uses, uh, including figuring out foot traffic patterns at stores and really being able to tell whether you're at the Dunkin' Donuts somewhere or the Starbucks, you know, directly across the street, that cell tower triangulation is not, in fact, good enough. So what the commercial applications are doing, um, they will work with apps that are on people's smartphones um, and that would have, that people would agree to share their location with. So Many of the common ones are weather apps because people will naturally share their location with those apps, travel, transit. Um, you can think of the categories there. And they have the location gathering companies might have a software development kit that the app developer can put into the app. And that will get the location from either GPS or Wi-Fi triangulation, you know, something that is pretty precise, and send that along directly to the location company's um, servers. Um, so that is one method. Um, in another method, the app will simply get that as a first-party um, uh, transfer of data. And then once it's on their servers on the back end, then... They just um, set up a, a delivery of that data to the location company, you know, at regular intervals. And then there are a few instances in which location gathering or using companies have actually um, actually own the apps themselves and get the information that way. So it's just a first party transfer. It's, you don't need an SDK or anything. You just, you own the app and um, people are sharing their, their location data because it's a weather app, but um, you are also using it for, to power advertising and analysis products and so forth. So uh, for the listener at home, the SDK here, the software development kit is basically what the app developer does is put a few lines of code into the app that you're using. So that could be your weather app or it could be um, any other app that you have. And that is allowing these companies to 
to pull this data out. Now, the data that they have access to, in my understanding, is the data that the app itself has permission to at the you know, maximum, right? So if your app has permission to your fine-grained location whereabouts, because if you look at different app permissions um, at, on the developer back end, it might be fine-grained, it might be coarse-grained, it could be your microphone, it could be other things. Hypothetically, that's the, the, what the company who is offering the SDK can the advertising companies, for example, say, um, can also get access to it. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And so um, the teacher we tracked, uh, her name was Lisa McGrin, and um, or she was rather in the data that we um, were able to see. And, um, you know, it tracked her in some um in some periods as often as every two seconds. And what we found um, was that, you know, that level of tracking doesn't occur all the time. It will happen if you're moving at a higher rate of speed because the phone will get your location very frequently um, at that time. So it can provide you with things like turn-by-turn navigation. And then if the phone is simply at rest at your home, it's not going to be accessing location, you know, that frequently. In that particular case example. Right. Yeah. Okay. So so you, these SDKs are then almost like a web browser cookie in that they're they're being used to, to track people, but it's, it's in your phone. So I, I, in the article, it says uh, um, 75 companies receive anonymous precise location data some for up to 200 million devices, um, one company within a few yards up to 14,000 times per day. Those 75 companies, that's part of the sample that you collected? Um, so we saw a portion of those companies. So we had a, a sample of data from one company, um, and that was to see what this kind of data could show because, you know, it's, it's pretty revealing. And then we also tested a number of apps to see which third parties they sent this data to. And then we contacted the third parties, researched them, um, figured out what they were using this data for, if they were receiving it by accident and so forth. And then in addition, we spoke with a lot of people in the industry, um, to get information about other companies that we did not detect through testing because, you know, a lot of these companies, if you have a deal with a bunch of apps to get their data um, just server to server on the back end, you're not going to be detectable through testing. And so the only way to um, learn about those companies is to talk with people in the industry, you know, look at reports on the industry, go to their websites and speak with them and, and that sort of thing. So some, go ahead. No, no, it's fine. Okay. Um, so some of these, um, uh, industry players are quite, uh, aggressive. So the companies usually have websites, which are basically promotional websites that they're advertising for app publishers, um, primarily. So, uh, if you're looking to make money off of targeted advertising or whatnot inside your app, um, you can 
sign up for or or use one of these companies' products or potentially pay for it. And uh, if you go to some of the websites, so one that I have in mind is called City Labs, C-I-T-I-Labs.com. And if you go to the website, you'll see like an animation at the beginning where they're putting – uh, little circles around people who are in motion and then they might put age, 18 to 44, income, so on and so forth. And it, it resembles the, the, the kind of maps that, that you, the New York Times uh, – that you guys put on inside the article. And you know, looking at that industry, there's just all of this going on there. So what – in your assessment – how how do you reconcile this like uh, against the common person's understanding of what's going on here but also did you find a, a spectrum of 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 how brazen these companies are about what it is that they do right so um yeah i'll take the second question first i would say there is definitely um a spectrum here and th- some companies that we spoke with do take measures to, you know, anonymize their data or at least make it um, more difficult to uh, identify somebody in that data. So they will, one company, it's uh, SDK, doesn't send location back to the company until it has on the device figured out you know, where the person's home likely is. And um, once it determines that, it doesn't send the data in a usable way, like in from a 1,000 foot box around the home um, and making sure not to have the home be kind of the center of that box. The home is just somewhere within a 1,000 foot box. And you know, that's not, you could still probably identify people based on where they work and where they're going and, you know, their um, zip code um, and so forth. But it is at least evidence that they are thinking about this problem, which is not true of, you know, some of the other companies that will just say, well, we're associating this with your advertising ID, um, which is like the cookie number sort of thing from your phone, and your name's not on it, so it's completely anonymous, um, and we'll just store the raw data or sell it. So, you know, I mean, there are dozens and dozens of these companies, and there's quite a spectrum. Some of them um, will actually delete the data after they use it for advertising, so they delete it in a pretty short amount of, uh, after a short amount of time. Some of them say in their privacy policies that it's kept indefinitely or as long as needed for business purposes, which has no real meaning. Um, so it just really, it runs the gamut, um, honestly, and it's, it's opaque and there's not any kind of regulation on this. In terms of what users think is happening, I think that a lot of people at this point you know, we didn't conduct a um, an actual sample. You know, so this is on a based on just a small number of interviews. But um, you know, I think people were aware, in some sense, that they are being tracked. You know, you look at your map, you see a blue dot on there. You 
you know, get information about where you are at a certain time, you do understand that your location data is going somewhere and being analyzed in some way. And you might even know that it's being used to show you ads um, for a coffee shop that you're nearby or something like that. But I think people think that the data is kept for a much shorter, much smaller amount of time than it really is. They don't realize how often it's being collected. Um, A lot of people think that if they haven't used an app in a while, that there's no way it could just keep collecting data on them. And they don't realize that it's being sold for these other uses like um, analysis for financial firms and hedge funds and things like that. Yeah, so we'll get to that. Um, The device ID you had mentioned. Now, uh, Google and Apple, Google has its uh, Android operating system. Apple has its iOS operating system. Uh, They have device IDs. Mm -hmm. Um, Apple, at a certain point in time, said it will kick out third-party app developers who track Apple device IDs. Uh, They market themselves as as more pro-privacy than other companies. Yet, we all know that these device IDs are being used for various kinds of tracking. How are device IDs being used, and do apps also assign their own device IDs? I've seen in doing some research, uh, it's not necessarily always just the Google or Apple device ID. So can you tell us a little bit about the device ID story? Sure. Um, Okay, so... You've got several different types of device IDs, and it depends on the the operating system that you're using. And Apple has taken this more privacy-protecting stance of not letting developers get these um, kind of hard-coded device IDs. So both companies have um, advertising IDs, which the user can reset, but which in practice, I think many people do not reset. Um, And those, I think, are the IDs that we're aware of being used most frequently, that in our testing we saw being sent most frequently. But some developers um, and SDK developers do take the um, hard-coded device IDs, at least from Android, um, and they also are obviously doing device fingerprinting. So they'll take a lot of information that, you know, in aggregate tells you a lot about that device and enables you to link devices to be able to tell that it's the same device, even if the person, um, you know, resets the advertising ID. So they will take information on the IP address that it's using, of course, um, but also things like the uh, screen size and the time zone and the specific time there and um, a lot of little settings on the phone that individually just seem kind of random and unimportant, but together can really tell them which phone this is. Um, so we did see that happening in a few cases. But again, mostly they are using the advertising identifiers um, that have been set up by Google and Apple. 
Yeah, and and you know, de-anonymization or um, de-identification of or, or re-identification of de-identified data, i.e., data that's claimed to be anonymized. Uh, a lot of people don't understand how that works because it's a little bit counterintuitive. So each individual piece of information about each one of us is commonly shared usually. So what sports team you like, what food you like, things like that. But if you take a handful of things, like for example, I went to South Africa and did studying there. I also like the Charlotte Hornets basketball team. I'm male. When you're male, you cut out 50%. Go to South Africa, now you're cutting out a large greater percentage. When you take in your sports team that you like, you start narrowing down and you realize that with a, actually with a small set of variables, each one of them are widely shared. But when you combine it, actually each one of us are very unique in that way. And so for that reason, a lot of security researchers have really uh, shown that anonymization is somewhat misleading so when you had mentioned the aggregation of information about people to de-identify them, I have this little clip here from a Salesforce uh, chief technology officer who was giving a webinar about uh, how they go about conducting this process to identify individuals. And for the audience back at home, Salesforce is, a, is, a, is actually a really big tech company and – they're multi-billion-dollar, huge, um, huge company here, but a lot of people don't know who they are. So I just want to play this clip uh, real quick. IMH manages multiple identities. First-gen DMPs deal only with cookies and disconnected devices. Identity is fundamental. Today we deal with a multitude of ident- identities for a person. There's cookies, there's hashed emails, there's PPIDs, there's IDFAs, there's Android IDs, there's, the list goes on and on, right? And so you need a system that can handle the multitude of identities together and using a combination of deterministic and probabilistic methods, stitch them all together and create an identity for a person. Why is this important? Why is robust, why do you need a robust identity management framework? Well, because you're you're dealing with people, right? It's people data. People will perform research on their desktops and their tablets and then ultimately convert or perform transactions on their phones. So conversion analysis and attribution requires a DMP or IMH to not just capture the data about, about across these different devices, but you also need to be able to stitch those together and create an identity for a person. So there what he's saying is um, basically each one of us uses a a multitude of devices and we want to have a a persistent identity. And so the DMP is a data management platform that uh, Salesforce has or an intelligent – from memory here, intelligent management hub um, that they're developing and that's how they're going about bringing things together and that allows them to um, give each one of us – a persistent identity across our device uses, and then we can convert, meaning uh, purchase things, you know, that we've seen from from advertisements. Um, Here, 
in an article by Nicole Nagoyan at BuzzFeed, she emailed Salesforce, and this is what they said back to her. They said, um, Salesforce is not a data management company, but rather the leader in customer relationship management, and said Salesforce does not create profiles of people. Companies turn to Salesforce technology to help build and grow customer relationships, leveraging their own information to do so. To me, that was an interesting comment because on their website, when they explain how their systems work, they are assigning or performing these services, as, as we just heard, to identify people, stitch together their behavior across devices. They segment audiences by age, gender, and so on. How, how did you see the data broker industry uh, in terms of its rhetoric? You know, did you find that there was a, a gap between you know, what companies want to say that they're doing once you start asking them questions and, and what they're really actually doing? Yes, I would say that, that, that there's definitely a gap between the rhetoric, the answers that they provide to the press, um, especially upon initial questioning, if you don't have technical data you, that you're able to ask them about. And, um, you know, I think what any reasonable consumer's interpretation of their actual practices would be. Now, that statement doesn't apply to every player that is gathering or using location data. So there are uh, a subset of these you know, 75 odd companies that we researched that, you know, really are just uh, providing ads based on locale and, you know, aren't building a profile of a user. It's more immediate and, and so forth. So there is definitely that kind of thing. And there are some that are just that are analyzing the data in a very aggregate form um, and providing that aggregated analysis. Um, but that does mean that they store the data um, in a raw format, which raises, you know, some security concerns, I think. So I, I just want to caveat that because I, I try to be fair to the companies, which is tough when talking about, you know, so many at once, right? But I would also say that there are a lot of them that um, would object to the use of the word tracking. They would say they're not tracking anybody. They certainly think that the data is um, anonymous or anonymized. Um, and, you know, when I would ask whether somebody could be uh, re-identified in the data, they would argue with me and say that it would just be incredibly difficult that, you know, this couldn't really be done in a reasonable fashion. And then eventually they would acknowledge that, well, technically it could be done. And meanwhile, I'm sitting here, you know, having done this, asking them the question. So that was a little strange. Um, but I think they also will use language that is very similar to what consumers encounter in privacy policies, which I think um, gets to you know, some of your questions. Um, and it's really hard to decipher, you know, you basically have to, as a reporter, like 
argue with them um, and ask repeatedly what something actually means, you know, in plain English. Um, so they might say, for example, you know, I would say, okay, we looked at your website and so forth. We've seen this documentation from your company. So is it correct to say that you are using precise location data or you're gathering precise location data? And they would say, no, we have never, we do not gather precise location data. And I would just be extremely confused. And eventually we would get to a point where they say, no, we're not gathering location data because we don't have any apps or SDKs ourselves. The apps gather the data and then they share it with us and we just receive the data. I still do not completely understand the difference there, but, you know, that was a difference that they wanted to make sure that we, you know, portrayed. So it, I think I can't imagine how a consumer would have time to figure all of this out. It's, it is It's like Bill Clinton saying he he smoked but he didn't inhale. Right, right, or what the <laughs> definition is is, you know, it just is it boggles the mind and if you're not, you know, this is my job. I'm being paid to argue with these people and figure out what is actually going on so I can tell readers about it, right? If this is not your job, then I cannot figure out how you would be able to decipher all of this. Yeah. I mean, so so you guys looked at, um, you said about 70 or so companies. Mm-hmm. And how did you pick those? And why do companies talk to you? I mean, if I'm a company and I'm doing this you know, business and New York Times reach out, reaches out to me, I might be like, ah, I don't know if I want to talk to them, right? Like, so how did you pick and, and, and you know, did you get turned down a lot? So, I mean, there, yeah, there were a lot of companies that didn't respond. Um, we picked um, these companies. So first we, we conducted this testing to see what companies there were that were actually receiving data from apps that were sending location data. So that was one set of companies. And then we talked with people in the industry, you know, and asked them, just in a background conversation, well, what are the other companies that are players in this industry? Um, we looked at actually some of the um, the documentation that is coming out now from the GDPR required statements in Europe was helpful because they're, um, you know, uh, companies that are using data have to list their data partners. So people that they're sharing or companies that they're sharing data with. And so, you know, if you look through there, they would have lists of all the people they're sharing the location data with. And you can see, then you can use that to kind of go and and research those companies. Um, So those were the methods that we used to figure out the universe of of companies that were uh, using precise location data. And then in terms of getting us, getting them to talk to us, um, yeah, I'm, some don't respond, but if the New York Times emails you or calls you up and says, there's a good chance that we're going to mention your company in an article, and this is the information we have, and we've seen you receiving this data from this app, and we're going to mention it whether you respond or not, then they might respond and to make sure that the information 
being portrayed or being given about the company is correct or that they have the opportunity to provide some comment or, you know, to figure out what the heck is going on with the story. Um, so that's kind of how that happens. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense uh, from their perspective as well. So uh, in terms of who gets their hands on this data, uh, so going back to some of the uh, things that were published in addition to the story, um, you had mentioned that people were tipping you off after you ran the Secure story in May. And one uh, website is a website uh, called Hacker News. And there is a post in there. So I clicked on the link um, and it says – uh, one of the top – at the beginning of the threads, uh, the poster says it's not just – this is supposedly somebody in, in working inside the industry. It's not just your cell carrier, your cell phone chip manufacturer, GPS chip manufacturer, phone manufacturer, and then pretty much anyone on the installed OS, Android crapware, um, is getting a copy of your location data, usually not – in software, but by contract, one gives GPS data to all the others as part of the bill of materials. I mean, he's saying here, phone chip manufacturer, GPS chip manufacturer, phone manufacturer. Did you find that the the hardware guys are getting access? So we didn't, our reporting didn't actually lead us down that particular path um, because, you know, we you know, we're testing these apps and seeing where the information was going. And um, it sounded like from that, that this was a, a perhaps a server to server transfer that we couldn't see. Um, and, you know, it wasn't entirely clear. And none of the companies we spoke with that are actually using the data for commercial purposes um, indicated that they were getting the location data from the device manufacturer or chip maker um, or, you know, the hardware folks. So I think that that could be another area of inquiry. Um, we just, our reporting didn't encounter that at this point, except for, you know, that one mention there. Yeah. So t- what about the uh, the big tech players? I, I know you have mentioned IBM in there, but there's also Google, Facebook, Apple, uh, you said that Google and Facebook are collecting location data but keep the data to themselves and use it for things like targeted advertising on their platforms and to determine whether users actually buy advertised products in brick-and-mortar stores. Um, okay. And then you also have uh, Apple. Now, um, Apple, again, claims to be a pro-privacy company. Uh, but if you go to their privacy policy, it says, and I quote you here, Apple and our partners and licensees may collect, use, and share precise location data, including the real-time geographic location of your Apple computer or device, end quote. Uh, they include GPS, Bluetooth, IP address, Wi-Fi hotspot, and cell tower locations. And this can be used to, quote, improve location-based products and services, end quote. So um, the do, do you find that the kind of big tech, Google, Facebook, Apple, are these guys um, uh, big players in this space? So that is a really interesting question. I think they do all get um, precise location data in massive quantities. 
and Google and Facebook um, have advertising products um, that use this location data. Apple, you know, as far as we could tell, is definitely getting location data and using it in certain services. Um, and uh, I think, you know, knows that the location data is accessible to app developers and, and so forth. Um, but they don't have, you know, their Apple ads product didn't work out. So it's not entirely the same as Google and Facebook. Taking those three players, nevertheless, just in total, the amount of location data that they get dwarfs the data being gotten by these other small players that are really, um, although they're numerous, are competing for in the remaining, you know, one third of the market or whatever it is, half the market. And so you have these giants and then you have these tiny players kind of scrambling and Google and Facebook are really getting the most money as well from the location um, data, but they are not really sharing it in or selling the data, especially in bulk, the way some other companies are, you know, an advertiser might see a point of data that, you know, based on your ad and so forth, might see a a location point, but they're not going to get your entire um, stream and and things like that. So um, I think there's some concern in that these large companies have um, massive amount of data. But on the other hand, the smaller companies, I think, have a different sort of, there are different risks that are associated with them that in some ways are more disconcerting, um, despite the fact that they don't have the large amount of the market and as much data. Um, because it's unclear that they have the budget to protect the data the way that um, a Google might, and there isn't regulation. So you're able to have small players that are really just selling the data outright, um, which Google and Facebook and Apple, you know, don't appear to be doing, you know, they're not selling this data to like a hedge fund or something like that. Right. And so I think it's a really interesting question in terms of weighing, which is more problematic or riskier for consumers. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting dynamic because on the one hand, you don't like seeing monopolization and market concentration. But on the other hand, it's like, but do you want all this data just in everybody's hands, right? Right, um, right. So like that doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, – or it doesn't make good sense uh, from a privacy standpoint. So the – Smaller players, I mean, I, I talked to, um, in, in my research studies, I, I talked to uh, SafeGraph, and they portray themselves as um, in danger because Google and these guys have so, so much access to data, and it's harder for others to get access. And they provide data services. One of the things they do is they, they claim to provide clean data, data that is very accurate and not faulty. And they're willing to share data with researchers that is um, uh, more or less pro bono. 
um, and then the, they'll license some data out to others who want to pay for it. In in the article, it says that twenty one billion dollars worth the, that the location tracking industry is worth, is worth something like twenty one billion dollars. I think this year, I wasn't a hundred percent clear on exactly you know what that meant, but it also says that you know small small companies are competing for um, you know part of the market and. Uh, including by selling data and analysis to financial institutions. This segment of the industry is small but growing, expected about $250 million a year by 2020. I'm assuming that's that's just the segment that that is selling to the financial industry. Is that right? Right. And then what is and then what is the $21 billion? Can you just so say a little bit um, about that? Location-based ads. Um, okay, so that is not you know the sale of the data and it's not really the analysis of the data either. It is the sale of ads that are using um, location to um, help target help target the advertising. And so that is by far the biggest use of the data monetarily. Um, I think it is probably the least concerning for consumers, although I, I do think there are a lot of questions about whether sensitive locations should be, including just hospitals at all, should be allowed to be used for advertising. Um, Right now, you know, targeting something at an, targeting an ad at an emergency room does not run afoul of um, even industry guidelines, which are not enforceable in any way. Um, So I think there might be, um, People might need to take a harder look at the advertising, but I think in terms of actual risk um, of people using this data for stalking or other nefarious purposes, that the um, raw data sales or holding of the data for analysis is more of a, a risk, even though it's not getting as much money. All right. I, I want to get to the regulation question um, shortly, but I want to ask about how many apps so uh, or the prevalence here. So you used a mobile analysis firm called Mighty Signal to see how many popular apps contain location sharing code. Um, they're doing scanning. Is that right? They are. So they have a scanner and they um, go through and look for the code libraries that are associated with certain SDKs that are from the companies that are are using this precise location data for commercial purposes. Okay. So popular apps is, to me, the key word there. Um, Google Android was found to have about 1,200, where Apple had about 200. Um, Yeah, we know these app stores each have about 2 million apps. you said that you 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 screened out apps that with fewer than five thousand downloads because there's there's just so many of them, and um, um, even though many of them include location tracking code, a different company called Safe DK, uh, which also seems to be a uh, uh, an, a firm that does analysis perhaps similar to Mighty Signal. Uh, they did a study of uh, 160,000 free Android apps and found 55% tried to extract y- user location data. Mm-hmm. Um, and a March 20 that was in March 2018. Theirs and then uh, a different a different a March 2015 study of 110 popular 
free mobile iOS apps uh, found that 47% shared geocoordinates coordinates and other location data with third parties. So uh, what about the prevalence here? Um, the numbers that are in the, in the time story seems to suggest that it's more concentrated in Android and I would assume that there's many more than 1,200 apps, um, of course, right, um, that are, are in Android and 200 in Apple that are doing location data. Am I right about the numbers here? Yes. So um, the uh, the testing using Mighty Signal, um, you know, it was looking only for these particular SDKs that were that we knew were using precise location data and kind of gathering it and storing it and using it for um, certain purposes. So we picked there were. 25 companies that they were able to scan for that met our criteria. So there are, I'm sure, many more apps on both platforms that are getting location data um, either as a first party transfer or as a transfer that might be to a third party, but that doesn't involve an SDK and, you know, isn't therefore including code that is purposely designed to really get a lot of this data, right? So um, I think that is a good technical point to to note. I think, though, that, that testing suggested that it's these SDKs really that are gathering a lot of this data are more prevalent on Android. And that seems to be partly because... Um, you know, that Android allows, it seems to be a little bit more permissive in terms of what kinds of location gathering code an app can can have um, than Apple does. Uh, but, you know, when we tested the apps on an individual basis, you know, we tested 20 apps and 10 each on Android and iOS we did not actually find much difference between the platforms and we were just testing apps that we knew were, were had location permissions. So, you know, on one hand, Android does seem more permissive, but on the other hand, once you're allowed to get location data on Apple, you can like they seem to send it to a lot of companies. So I'm sorry if that's confusing. It, um, I think there are several things going on here, and no, but it, it, I think the difference between platforms is is kind of difficult and still unclear. But I, and I think that each of these studies kind of sheds a light on a different aspect of the answer, if that makes sense. Yeah. No. I mean, I think that you know maybe a more Systematic study comparing the two could clarify some things ultimately for the entire community of researchers looking at this. You tested 20 apps. Uh, how are those apps selected? Um, so we were not trying to figure out um, in those tests how prevalent location collection was. We wanted to see you know, if there were differences between the two platforms. Um, we also wanted to see what notifications to consumers were like and um, what the sharing process was like in terms of, you know, what um, 
apps, what location data, what data was sent and how many players it was sent to. Um, and so we selected apps that we had been told either by researchers who were looking into Android um, or by people in the industry did collect location data. So this was just a test of practices of, um, you know, already known entities, like affirmatively sending, that were affirmatively sending location data. Um, and so that's how those were selected and we want it. So it's not at all a random type sample or anything like that. Um, we wanted to get a good variety of um, different types of apps, you know, weather apps, um, apps from large companies and small companies, transit apps, like social, small social networking apps, and um, just kind of do almost a, a spot test of like what this looked like, right? Yeah. And those are those apps are listed on, on the New York Times website. Um, so uh, you can use uh, GPS, you can use Wi-Fi, you can use Bluetooth, and you can use cell phone tower triangulation to track people. Uh, what did your study focus on and how did you make that determination? So we focused on we focused on the latitude and longitude that the app was sending, um, no matter how it was um, derived, although we did also look at apps that were sending, you know, the list of Wi-Fi networks in the area, but those apps were also sending the the latitude and longitude. So it wasn't like there were a lot of apps that were sending Wi-Fi signals, but not lat longs, right? Um, so I think when it is allowed, GPS is seemed to be the possibly the most prevalent, although Wi-Fi triangulation, I think, is is very important as well. And, you know, I would say that the, those are the main ways that um, the apps will get the, the data. I think it de- probably depends on the environment. Um, you know, if GPS is less readily available, but you're in a well-mapped place in terms of Wi-Fi, you know, I think that it's just going to depend on on where you are. A lot of companies are using Bluetooth, but we and but we didn't. We weren't testing that. Um, we did, however, in our reporting, encounter a lot of companies that are using um, Bluetooth signals. So then, what is done with the data? So, um, for example, in the report, seventeen of twenty apps tested uh, exact latitude and longitude to about 70 businesses. Um, what kind of businesses are getting this information? Right. So um, a number of them are the companies that we were really focused on in the story. So they're using the data either for advertising or analysis and profiling of the user or analysis of foot traffic for stores, things like that. Um, so retailers? Um, is it other data brokers? You have mentioned hedge funds. It, are those primarily the big three? Yeah. So I think advertising, retailing, and hedge funds are the big three like final end users of the data. But those are not the companies that are receiving the raw 
data initially from the apps, um, either through a transfer from the phone itself or a server-to-server deal. The companies that are receiving the data in those more initial steps are data aggregators, um, advertising networks or or uh, exchanges, and you know companies that are doing the analysis. And so so the some, ones that we so some of those companies, um, you know, when I was doing research at Yale for this, um, some of these companies would offer services to an app. So it might be even that. You have an app and you want to put advertisements in your app and they will customize how it looks inside your app. They'll make it look nice for you basically. Um, there's all sorts of – they can provide obviously targeted advertising so that you have more effective advertising than you know random ads. How did these, these companies – like are the app publishers paying a company to say uh, a location – collecting company uh, or one of these kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to call them middleman companies that you're describing here, um, these companies that are responsible for this as the not, not if, because you're saying also some of the app publishers, um, some of the apps actually collect the data themselves as well. But um, for those apps that aren't doing it, are they paying others to then run their product inside their app? I mean, how's the money exchange working here? So, what we saw were mostly um, the data companies generally pay the app developers um, in some fashion. So some of them will actually just pay the app developers outright. They'll say, you know, you installed our SDK or you send us the data and we will give you, you know, a couple cents, like a one cent per user per month or something like that um, for this data. Some of the data gathering companies will pay the app developers not outright, but by allowing them, giving them a tool that they can use to sell better targeted advertising because location-based advertising commands a premium over regular ads. So if you're an app developer, you want, you will want to install one of these SDKs that are ostensibly free so that you can you can provide advertisers with your user's geolocation and therefore sell more make more money selling ads and so that's the way the exchange uh, the economic exchange works and the um, SDK developer the location gathering company then also can gather that location data kind of on top of that. And you know, some of the location companies are providing um, kind of a good mapping experience um, to people, to app developers, if they will install this code. And then in exchange, they collect the location data. Um, so there are a few ways that it and so if I'm if I'm making an app, um, let's call it you know Mike's weather app or whatever. Um, basically, I want to have targeted advertising in there to make money, and I might make money because I I might make money on the basis of how many people see those ads, 
I make, make, make money on the basis of how many people click on them. If it can be monitored all the way down to the conversion, whether or not somebody actually purchases something, um, you might make money that way. Is, is that the incentive then for the um, person who makes the app? Um, yeah. So I think that's a big incentive. Um, and yeah, you might, the ads might be more effective if they're location based. Um, and certainly advertisers will think that they're better able to reach their target audience. Um, if the ad space that is being sold includes information about the user's location. Okay. So do we have time for just a, a couple more questions? Sure, sure, yeah. Okay, so um, looking at, say, privacy policies, there's um, there's different ways to try to address this. Uh, the, in Europe, the European Union has the uh, GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation, which was implemented earlier this year. Um, have you heard anything about how Europeans are going to go about handling this kind of location tracking? Um, so, you know, I think I'm not a great expert on how the GDPR is, is playing out. Um, you know, I have heard that, um, that this is going to be coming up in terms of, you know, location data collection, that this will be, um, an area that, um, folks are, are focusing on over there. I've also heard that a very small number, but um, a number of these location companies have pulled out of Europe um, and are just going to be in the U.S. and and elsewhere outside of the EU. So I think it'll be really interesting to watch um you know, I, I think there are questions about um, how aggregated and anonymized data has to be, um, you know, to um, in the EU. And I think people are going to start, you know, requesting their data and seeing if um, what can be provided over there. But I unfortunately, yeah, I, I don't have a great answer to that question because I don't cover Europe and just haven't been on our GDPR coverage. Yeah, and I mean the uh, the theory is that Europe is going to use this regulation to actually protect people's privacy. But the question winds up becoming, you know, how far does it go? And um, you know, uh, for me, I mean, there's always that question that I mean, going back to the the issue of how many people actually know this. I think it's an interesting question because honestly, when I think about that, even when you say like most people know that there's there's uh, some location tracking going on, I'm not a hundred percent sure how many most is. Right. You know, like I think about my grandparents. I mean, they have no clue. Right. Yeah. You know, and there's a lot of people who are in the society who you come across your typical next door neighbor, and they they really don't. F- you know, it's not just that they don't fully know. They might just not know at all. They know that there's right. tracking going on, most people, right, so in general. Um, so then, you know, you have that informed consent um, question. Um, how do you see the U.S. climate on this legally? Um, I mean, look, well, we have the law in California that might 
tell us a bit more about how things are going to play out here and what we're actually able to to do in the U.S. But I think this kind of reporting shows that the system we have now of notice and choice, where we're somehow expecting users to read through these policies that everybody knows they don't read and can't. It's not that they're stupid. It's just, you know, even extremely educated people who understand technology cannot always uh, glean useful information from these privacy policies, you know, and pretending that there's some legal system in which users are being fully notified because it's in buried because information is buried in this dense legal language of a privacy policy and that therefore all of the responsibility is on consumers and if they don't understand what's going on they're stupid and they're doing this to themselves uh it i think it's just a a failure it's a complete regulatory failure. Um, and I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a good prognosticator. Um, I kind of like to point out problems and, um, then, uh, hopefully point to possible solutions, but I'm not great at figuring out, um, what, uh, is going to work best. But I, I, based on my reporting, over a period of years now, I think people know that this notice and choice system is ridiculous and just, it's a farce. Um, and so I think the hope right now is to look to California and see if that is a good law. And if it turns out to be something that is actually able to help consumers navigate this world. Um, and that's what I I would be watching most closely as a reporter here in the U.S. Yeah, and just on that, backing that, like the ability to understand this, I did a lot of research on the tracking industry in general, not just the um, location tracking but advertising tracking. And I must have read through several hundred companies. I did – I produced a report, a, a big report on it and – you know, um, I can't tell you how many privacy policies I've read, and after a while, they all just right. They just blend in. Like you're like, and but what, what was really interesting about this is when I was digging through Salesforce's website, they had some videos on there about how the system works. And when I was watching these videos, I, I said to myself, "You really can't have a, a full understanding here unless you work for the company." Right, And it's almost like the NSA story where it's like those who are on the inside and see how the back end works have privileged access to information here and they're the ones who truly you know, understand this. Um, so even as a researcher, it winds up being somewhat confusing trying to figure out company by company what they're doing because we actually don't have access to the way the, the full system works. So it's not just rhetoric or people who are, don't like – you know the notion of what these uh, industries do or are uncomfortable with it. Um, it really is is true that uh, trying to get a sense of what's going on with these companies is a monumental um, research task that even a dedicated researcher will grapple with. Um, in the United States, um, we also have the Data Care Act, and that's a proposal based on. 
um, Jack Balkin here at Yale University in, in the Information Society Project and Jonathan Zittrain at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard. Uh, they came up with a, a, a proposal called Information Fiduciaries and that would require companies collecting our information to act according to fiduciary principles of care, loyalty and confidentiality. Um, what do you think about um, – so 15 senators uh, recently sp- sponsored uh, this privacy bill based on information fiduciaries called the Data Care Act. What do you think about Congress and their you know, willingness – I mean that's 15 senators but it's not everybody. Um, is there a climate in Congress or in the US legal system outside of California at the federal level? to try to put in some sort of mechanism here that can rein in some of these practices? So I think the um, interest in that has increased over the years, but I've seen bills be proposed session after session for, you know, I guess not quite a decade now, but for quite a while. And You know, it's tough to get Congress to act on things in our current political environment anyway. And this issue has, you know, involves a very lucrative industry that lawmakers are hesitant to battle, not only because the, um, they see it as an engine of economic growth, but also because, you know, these companies have the ability to have a lot of lobbying ability and are able to put money behind those efforts. And so I think it is tough and faces still an uphill battle. And, you know, I think that's one big reason that I'm looking to California to, to see how things go there because I think that's a, a pretty good, you know, we ha- there's a, an interesting chance there to see how um, privacy law might, might play out um, at the state level um, and see how that goes. I mean, I think there's definitely more interest in Congress right now. I think you'll see more hearings on this and it will get more attention. I don't know about actually um, passing a law. Um, you know, in this session. But I, I do think it's going to get a lot of it, – it'll get more attention. Yes. Uh, so maybe last question here. Um, what do you think ultimately – where is this all heading and, and you know, is tech solu- should tech solutions be a part of this, this you know, conversation as well? Look, I think tech solutions um, are worthwhile. I think when you say, you know, you can figure out like, that something is – that something is available for people to figure out that you still have to be highly motivated and much more technically skilled than quite a few people. Um, And there just continues to be a usability problem with a lot of tech solutions. Um, But that's not to say they're not worthwhile because I think that usable designs can um, come from those efforts and can demonstrate that, um, you know, solutions are possible. So for example, although it's, it's still not um, 
mainstream, I think something like when you're talking about privacy and security, it's a little bit off the um, subject, but um, Signal, for example, um, that kind of encryption um, until pretty recently was not accessible and not something that more mainstream platforms were even considering building in. And once you had a protocol like that, even though it was really just being used among a niche, um, other companies were able to incorporate that into their technology. And it's um, pretty popular now among a, a reasonably good set of of users, although they're still technically savvy compared with an average user. Um, so I think you can look to um, technological uh, innovations like that and, and see a good pathway um, for, uh, for certain solutions. Um, but I think a lot of this problem, just the fact that it, is based on asymmetric information and um, apparent market failure um, points to and points to some policy solutions. I don't think that you're going to be able to solve this without some uh, policy involvement. Yeah, I mean, in my my opinion, it, they're not mutually exclusive, right? So you keep working on both, and then try to do whatever you can, right? Education as well, right? Raising awareness. So, all right. Well, thank you very much for Jennifer for coming on the show. And uh, the story at the New York Times is, again, your apps know where you were last night and they're not keeping it secret. Uh, Jennifer is the lead author with three colleagues of hers at the New York Times. And uh, it's a great story. I, I really recommend you know everybody go and, and give it a read. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And I, I look forward to what comes next with, with your work as well. <laughs> thanks so much. I really uh, enjoyed talking with you, and I love the work that you guys do up there. So Okay. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye.